Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We're living in increasingly uncertain times, unexpected times. Who would have ever imagined five or six months ago the pandemic, the race riots, the uncertainty, the economic collapse? So how do we prepare for the unexpected? Evi Pompouris is a remarkable woman. She's a former Secret Service agent to several presidents, uh, television personality, and the author of an interesting new book titled, I would imagine, Before the Current Crisis, Becoming Bulletproof. Uh, Evi, uh, if, if you were to choose the title of your book now, would you choose the same title? It, 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 it's certainly a, a little chilling. You know, there's a lot of thought into the, the title that I chose, and it's because you're, we're all constantly trying to become resilient, and that's really the essence of what the, mo- the, the book means. And I took it from the fact that in my career, I wore a bulletproof vest, and the bulletproof vest is actually made out of Kevlar, which is fabric. And when you put all those pieces of fabric together, you create something so resilient that it's, it, it creates a level of protection for you. It's not metal. Most people think it's some kind of metal or steel in there. And the book itself is designed like that because it's not one thing in your life that you do that makes you strong. It is all the little things that you do. And when you put them back layer upon layer, as with the book, chapter upon chapter, when you put that all together, that is what makes you a resilient human being. It's the habits and skills and education and experiences that you compile that make you resilient. And then also, again, with a bulletproof vest, when I would wear that, I was not completely bulletproof, so to speak. My arms, my legs, my head was exposed. And so with that, you understand that you are always vulnerable. And the importance of it is knowing that and being okay with it. And I didn't want to sell people something that was a myth, something that wasn't true. So uh, quite a few people were like, you should call it fearless. And I was like, I can't call it that because it's, it doesn't exist. It's not true. And I'm telling people to attain something that they will never attain. And then not only that, when they can't attain it, they're going to think something is wrong with them. And there was a lot of thought put into the title of the book and, 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 and what it means and how it's designed for everybody. How surprised are you, Evie, by the current unrest in America, particularly the resentment against maybe not secret service organizations, but certainly the police. Have you been taken by surprise by this? No, I'm not taken by surprise because I think that this is something that has been building up and people have been voicing over the years, you know, hey, we're not okay with this. Hey, there's a problem here. And policing has to evolve. It just has to. It is a, it is a system that, that has been slow to evolving and changing. And one of the, the issues that exists with policing is that you've got 17,000 police departments or law enforcement entities in the United States, each operating on its own. This is where we have uh, a deficiency in standards. 
where one department operates one way, another another way. There's no uniformity, and it causes confusion within the public. The other thing that I think is very important that people are not discussing and aren't looking at, everyone's focused on training and funding. You need to focus on who you are hiring. The standards that are imposed on the people being hired. There are many police departments, many, in the United States that will hire you simply with just a high school degree and maybe a little bit of work experience. How are you giving a badge and gun and the power to impact another human being's life to someone with so little experience? People, there are higher standards created for people putting in for a managerial job at a fast food restaurant or a business than there are for those that are being recruited into the police department. So we need to look at the level of education and the caliber of who we're hiring because traditionally policing has been focused on the physical part of the job, which don't get me wrong, is very important being able to physically handle the job because there is that level, but we have not been focusing on communication. So an educated mind, a mind that's gone, had some type of education and real world experience combination is going to handle the public differently. And then also even something polygraphing, polygraphing people who go into these jobs. So in the U.S. Secret Service, we were polygraphed. And that is to see if somebody is being truthful with their background. So many people lie. And there were plenty of applicants who failed the U.S. Secret Service's polygraph exam and gave up information on behavior, inappropriate behavior, even criminal behavior, but then would leave to go to a local police department and get the job because there was no polygraph. Even psychometric testing. Are you giving mental health tests and evaluating these professionals before you give them a badge and a gun? And emotional testing as well. Evie, I think you bring up an incredibly important point about preparation. You were uh, in the Secret Service for both Bushes, uh, Obama, Clinton, Gerald Ford. You, uh, you won a, a Secret Service Medal of Valor for your heroism at 9-11. But you're also educated at Columbia University. I think you got both an undergraduate and a master's degree there. And now you teach criminal justice and criminology. How essential do you think education is in eliminating bias? I saw some stats recently comparing the kind of education that the typical American policeman or woman gets versus those in Europe, particularly countries which are more enlightened like Finland. Do you think that education makes more tolerant, less biased police officials? Yeah, because if I'm just going off of somebody who went to high school, where do they go to high school, Andrew? In their hometown, with their friends, and the small community. They're exposed to that small community of people, and that is all they know. But when you leave, and I teach as an educator now in a, in a college environment, but when you're in a classroom and it is a diverse classroom and there are other people from different walks and paths of life, even different countries, you are exposed to other opinions outside of yourself. And then you learn to communicate. And I have students, I teach a criminal justice class and different walks of life and different opinions. And the most important thing I tell my students is articulate why you disagree on something, that it is okay to disagree, that it, there is no absolute one person is right, one person is wrong. But if you disagree with something, articulate your thoughts, explain that, and then also be willing to listen to somebody else's life perspective. It is such an important thing to have that type of education. Is the only way, do you think, to reform the police, to defund it? Do we need profound structural reform? No, I think that, I think, look, structurally, there do need to be some changes. But in essence, the core of your problem is 
who you are hiring. Who? I don't care how much training you give to somebody, but if you hire the wrong applicant, the wrong person, you can give them all the training in the world. If they are a bully, or if they have the wrong temperament, or they are biased, they have don't have the ability to communicate with other people. If you hire that person, you can train them all day long. You put the wrong person in that position. Truly, the fundamental thing is the foundation of who you are hiring. Fix that, and you will see a profound change. And then also focusing on things outside of the physical part of the job. Very little thought has been put into the way you communicate with people. Interviewing people. I became an interrogator in the U.S. Secret Service. And I have to tell you, I didn't. I was trained after I became an agent by the Department of Defense, by a very educated population of people on tactics of influence, how to talk to people, rapport and empathy. Empathy. And because of that, I became better at my job. These were things I did not know. And I came from a prestigious institution to begin with. So if I don't know things, and there were plenty of times where I sat in a, a police interview room and done po- interviews with other law enforcement, and I have seen the way they've spoken to people, and I'm, and I'm thinking, of course you're not getting information from this person. You don't know how to communicate. So if all you do is the law and order approach, which, which is great on television, you are going to fail drastically, not just in connecting with society, but also getting people to give you information. Why can't you solve a case? Because nobody wants to talk to you because you don't know how to talk to people. It's really interesting that you know that that you've done quite a lot of interrogative work. Um, you promise one of the things you promise in the the subtitle of your book is 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 teaching how to read people. How did you learn how to read people? Schooling. It was the education process. After I became an agent, they sent me to the Department of Defense, to the Polygraph Institute, where we spent a great deal of time understanding human behavior, human psychology, understanding the mannerisms people do, how they behave when they're nervous, when they're not nervous, different things. But then also after that, it was implementing these strategies. The more you talk to people, the more you pay attention. And I mean pay attention because we don't pay attention. We think we do, but we don't. And when you know what to look for, people give you clues. They tell you who they are and what they want. And one of the most profound things I ever learned, because I went in with this myth, which I think a lot of people have, is the person who speaks the most in a conversation, that person has the most power and they control the conversation. They do not. It is the person who speaks the least who has the most power because they have learned everything about you and you have learned nothing about them. And they have been gathering information on you. So now when they do speak, they can come in in a more intelligent way. And you're thinking, oh, wow, this person gets me. Yeah, they get you because you've been talking and they've been listening. And what did you learn? Absolutely nothing. So it really is the power of silence and listening to people and creating rapport. When you get people to put their walls down, they will begin to reveal themselves to you and communicate with you and trust you. But when you talk to people like garbage, you will get garbage. That stuff you see on TV, getting in people's faces, interrogating people, quote unquote, none of that works. None of that works. Every we've been talking to one another for 10 minutes now. We haven't spoken before. And unfortunately, we're not in the same room. We're doing this online. Have you learned anything about me over these last 10 minutes? I've learned that you're very thoughtful in the way you approach. And actually, prior to um, the interview, you asked me, you said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question later. I just want to let you know. And that goes to show me that you care about the people on your show and then you care about your show and that you don't want the person to be caught off guard. 
and that you just want to make sure that the show and the information on the show flows well. And so I thought that was thoughtful. A lot of people don't think that far ahead. Well, you've 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 fallen into the next question. Uh, the other <laughs> thing you the other thing you promise is to influence situations. You've certainly um, you've you've certainly uh, made me sympathetic to you. How how do we influence situations generally, Evie? What are you saying in your book to help people shape the world around them, shape their social interactions outside outside the criminal realm, just in their everyday lives? So here here's something very simple: empathy. I think we, we, we uh, many of us think empathy is synonymous to being weak, and it is not. And empathy is not the same as sympathy. Empathy means understanding another person's point of view. So let's say you're having, Andrew, a difficult conversation with someone, but you want to you tell them something and they're not hearing you. A big reason of why people don't listen is because they feel that you're not hearing them. So what, here's, a, here's a great tactic, and it's a, it's a skill. If you're having a conversation with someone and they're coming in and they're hot and they're heated and they just start telling you things and instinctually what you want to do is you want to cut them off, be like, no, that's not correct. No, that's not this. This is what you're going to do instead. You're going to shut up. You're not going to say a word and you're going to let them go and you're going to let them vent and say what they need to say. And after 20 minutes or 30 minutes, they will be done. And then they will one, be tired. And then two, more importantly, they will, they will feel heard. They will feel heard. And now because of that, they're able to receive you. So one, you know you can come in and talk to them now, and now they're able to listen, and now they feel understood by you. But what happens is we don't allow that, and we also take it very much to heart. How dare you talk to me? How dare you speak to me? And that's our ego. It's super fragile. Get that out of the way. That is a huge and powerful influence strategy in a business meeting, in a personal relationship, and talking to your kids. Let people feel heard. Then when you let them do that, then you come in. So you are giving the advice that we should get our ego out the way. Uh, as I suggested at the beginning of this conversation, you work for a number of presidents, actually all the most recent presidents, except for Donald J. Trump. Um, what do you make of him, particularly in terms of becoming bulletproof? It seems like if anything, he's becoming more and more bullet prone. He, he, it's as if he read your book and did the absolute opposite. Yeah, you know, I've never served under pre the current president. And in truth, I can't, aside from what the public sees and what I see as a, uh, a public part of the plug myself, I can't speak to him or into anything like that. And that's why I did not include him in the book. You know, I spoke about the virtues I learned from the presidents that I protected. And as far as protecting him, yes, you know, for the Secret Service especially, this is someone who's very, um, it, first of all, we've got so many things going on. The country is extremely po polarized. There's so, many, so much conflict. And a lot of it is connected to him in some way. People are connecting it to him in some way. So you'll, and you'll see people that really, really love the president or really, really despise the president. And that can make it very difficult because their exposure and the things they say and do does impact the way you protect them. And it can make somebody more prone to a threat or less prone to a threat. But, it, but as an agent, you can't tell them, don't say this, don't do that. You can't, that is not your place. As an agent, you have to adapt and mold yourself to them. The most you can do is say, Mr. President, or to his staff, let's not go to this location. Let's not go to this rally, and this is why. But beyond that, you are not there to police them morally or ethically or anything like that. You are simply there to do protection. So when I did do my protection for presidents, that's what I did, and that is all I did.
One story, Avi. Uh, you, you must have an amazing number of anecdotes, some of which are probably not publishable, certainly to a, a family audience. But if there's one anecdote, your, your favorite story about all your adventures as a, a Secret Service special agent for these United States presidents, what's the story? Gosh, there's so many. You know, I really, with the book, I tried not to to talk or gossip about anybody. I, I didn't want it to be that kind of a book. But if you're asking truly about the people I protected or an, or an assignment, or it could be an investigation. Well, Andrew. a story that perhaps speaks to their generosity or bravery or or, or, or uniqueness, because all, all, all the men, and they were, of course, all men, but all the men you protected in, in their own way were all remarkable, weren't they? They were. You know, I think what resonated with me the most is that I would see all the presidents get hit and insulted with ridicule and insults. And a lot of us, when we are bullied, because they are bullied. I mean, once you become president, it's like, it's, a, it's an open field day on you. And it is bullying to some degree. And yet, to be able to still withstand and go to your office and sit there and do a media interview, go talk to the public, put a smile on your face after somebody called you horrible names, most of us would not be able to do that. And that's really, really taxing. It's a really taxing thing. And they all do, did it in such a unique way. Even President Bush, I mean, when he left office, I remember such a difficult time. So many people had a negative perception of him. And yet, you know, he still did his thing. This is the, old, the, the older Bush. Bush Younger senior. Bush, 43, 43. Oh, okay. and, but even Bush Sr., I think one of the things he did, and I didn't get to write it in my book, one of the things I learned from him is he would write handwritten notes to people saying thank you. He, never, he didn't write emails or anything like that. He was very old school. And in fact, I used that when I did my book. When, when my book came out, now that it launched, and I wanted to send people books um, my publishers and everyone's like, oh, just send everybody an email and say, hey, here, and here's what you write. And I said, I'm not going to do that. And I took a page out of President Bush's 40, 41's tactics. And I bought note cards and I hand wrote to everybody a note card and send them my book, at least those people that I wanted to have it, to help share it. Because I felt like that was a much more meaningful way to ask people, hey, could you spread the word about my book? Would you share it with others? So that you have four, in, in the subtitle, four promises uh, in becoming bulletproof, protecting oneself, reading people, influencing situations. And the final one is live fearlessly. I get the first three. But what's so great about living fearlessly? Shouldn't we live fearfully? Isn't that the best way to protect ourselves? No, we want to balance. And it says fearlessly, not be fearless. We were, I was very mindful of that because there's no such thing as being fearless because it doesn't exist. And I think that's what you're talking about, Andrew. So what does live fearlessly mean? It means finding that balance. And it means having fear is a good thing to some extent. When you cross the street, you look both ways, right? Why? Because you fear getting hit by a car. When you leave your house, now you wear a face mask. Why? Because you don't want to catch the virus and you don't want to give it to somebody else. That is healthy doses of fear. And that is good. What is not healthy is when you are stuck in a job or in a relationship and you are afraid to leave or paralyzed by fear to leave because you don't know what you're going to do or you don't know where you're going to go and we don't do anything. Or when something happens and you don't act and you look back and you're like, I wish I would have done this or I wish I would have taken a chance on this. 
or I didn't do this because I thought I was going to fail, or I thought I was going to be rejected. That is fear that is paralyzing. And that is fear that alters our life in a negative way. Because when you look at the research and when you look at the science, more people are upset with themselves when they look back at their life, at the things they didn't do versus the times they did make a choice, even if it was the wrong choice. They are more okay with that, making the wrong choice and having made a mistake versus looking back in their lives and saying, I never did this and having more regret over that. Finally, Evie, I want you to be fearless and make a hard choice. Everyone, of course, should read your book, Becoming Bulletproof. Uh, but is there another book people should be reading during the lockdown? I think given what is happening right now with the protests and police, there's a great book written by Anthony Ray Hinton and Laura Love. It's called The Sun Does Shine. And it's a memoir about a man who did 30 years in prison for a crime he never committed. And I think it was a very powerful book and a very relatable book in that he tells the story and he does it in such a way to expose the injustice that exists in the criminal justice system. And I'm always a believer of educating our mind in everything. And even me, I, I, came from, I come from a criminal justice background. I am that person who would pe put people in, in jail or in prison for crimes they committed because Secret Service, we investigated crimes as well. We're a dual mission agency. But I am also not delusional enough to believe that there is no injustice within the system that I worked in. And so I think that's a very powerful book. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.